Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Christianity, among all world religions, amongst all philosophies and other things that call themselves religions or faiths, Christianity, above all, puts belief before practice. Uh, if you look at other religions and other philosophies and other worldviews, they might have creeds and they might have uh, a theology, they might have doctrines, but the first thing you notice about other world religions is what they do. And certainly there should be that about Christianity, that let them see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They should be able to see that in us. We've been talking about that. But at the forefront of what Christianity is, is a set of propositional truths that you must agree to and believe in in order to call yourself a Christian, namely the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and who he is and what he came to do. That's what it means to be Christian. We put the doctrine and the theology first. But that is not to say that practice is not important. As I said, now that we have been saved, we're freed to love we're freed to serve. We're freed to do those good works. Not good works to save us, but good works that flow from who we are in Christ. But practice is important. And as we continue in the book of Romans today, we're going to see an important idea when it comes to Christian practice. And that is the idea of Christian liberty. How can we as Christians use our Christian liberty, freed from the law, freed from sin, freed from the curse of sin, now free in Christ? How do we use that freedom to serve the body of Christ and to serve the world and to present Jesus to the world? You might have heard me use the term theological triage before. It's not unique to me. It's not original to me. I think Dr. Al Mohler was the first one I heard use that. And we talk about primary doctrines, secondary doctrines, tertiary doctrines, and even lower doctrines. So primary things you must believe to be a Christian. Secondary things that we might differ on, but we can still be Christians, maybe at different churches. Tertiary issues, things we might differ on, and we probably can still go to the same church. And then even lower and lower and lower we go. So we have to assess theologically where we're talking about before we have a disagreement. The same thing is true with our practice and how we live our lives, especially when it comes to debatable or disputable issues of Christian liberty. In other words, what can I do and what can I not do? And even here, Christians, even in the same church, will disagree. Can you, can you believe that? There will be disputes, there will be debates, there will be disagreements on a practical level of what it means to be a Christian in terms of how I live. Now, there are clear-cut biblical doctrines. There are clear-cut biblical issues of morality. We're not talking about those. We're talking about disputable areas where Christians have historically and even to this day disagree. Let me give you one prime example. When I was in Bible college, my Bible college at that time called the Free Will Baptist Bible College in Nashville, Tennessee, um, we could not play what they called face cards in our dormitories. Right? So like regular cards with diamonds and clubs and things. So what did we do instead? Everybody played Rook. So you did the same thing you do with those cards except with a different set of cards. But the face cards, you know, that's, that's way out there. We couldn't have long hair. You would get a demerit for your hair being a certain length on your, on your head. Um, we couldn't go to movies. We weren't supposed to. Say it that way. We weren't supposed to. Uh, we couldn't wear shorts. Uh, until I was, at, I think, my third year at this Bible college, you could not wear shorts. And even then, once they allowed it, it had to be the ones you purchased from that Bible college with that logo uh, at a certain length, of course. Uh, couldn't have TVs in our rooms. Um, so in my third year of Bible college, when I opened up a, a virgin bar in my room called Captain Matt's Oasis, you know, that was frowned upon. And uh, when I went to the dean to talk to him, and he said, you, you can't do this anymore. Uh, because of the appearance of evil and all that. 
I, I quickly drew attention to the fact that in our coffee shop where the pool tables were, pool tables, right, we sold IBC root beer in the brown bottles, and kids walked around acting like they were drinking and playing pool. Uh, but he told me very quickly we were not here to argue about these things. And so just to give you a little bit of background, if you can believe it, back in the 1980s, a college split off of that college because they said that college, my college, was too liberal. Okay, so if you can imagine this world, and those of you who are familiar with different denominations of Christianity, I mean, this is not a foreign concept. Now, we might say that's ridiculous, it's confusing, it's upsetting, it's off-putting. So the question is, though, where do we draw the lines? And I think today Paul helps us here, maybe, maybe more with not, uh, where not to draw the lines than where to draw the lines. But this idea of Christian liberty brings up the question of gray areas. Lower level issues where the Bible isn't necessarily clear or straightforward on Christian practice. So let's begin reading in Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read in chunks today, so I'm going to start with verses 1 through 9 here in Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. That is a weak person, isn't it? Let the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced of his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. So let's stop for a minute and consider what might have been the hot debates in the Roman church. And we picked up on a few of those, didn't we? Namely, days, certain days, and food. Now, this might not seem very familiar to us. That might be a completely foreign concept to be arguing about days and arguing about food. But to put yourself in the first century setting, in a congregation in the middle of the Roman Empire, literally in the capital of the Roman Empire, with former Jews who have become Christians and embraced Jesus, former pagans in the Greco-Roman world who have become Christians, former members of that society who were maybe a part of some ascetic group that practiced asceticism, sort of fasting or abstaining from sexual contact or anything like that, and you put all those people together in Christ, you're going to have differences. All these backgrounds and all these cultures and all these varied opinions and religions that have come into this place, now uniting under the banner of Jesus Christ, there are going to be debates. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, the early church had already dealt with such a debate between Jews and Gentiles. And the question was, all these Gentiles are becoming Christians, they're accepting Jesus, do they need to be Jews? How does this work? They went to the apostles, how does this work? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the Old Testament dietary laws? Do they need to observe the feasts and the Sabbaths? You know, how does this work? They're coming to Christ, but does that mean they need to be Jewish first? And the apostles got together with the council of Jerusalem there in Acts 15, and they decided that no, they do not need to be Jews. They have come to Christ in the same way that we Jews have come to Christ. And so there was a, a law, if you will, set down to abstain from things that are strangled, things with the blood in them. But even then, it was not telling the Gentiles that those things are sinful. It was telling the Gentiles that for the sake of your Jewish brothers, abstain from these things so that you don't put a stumbling block before anyone and we can avoid unnecessary conflict within the churches. Now, some of that stuff was still prevalent in Rome, certainly with the Jews and the Gentiles. You throw in the ascetics, you throw in some of the pagan background, and you're soon having a lot of debate about foods and dates and days and Sabbaths. And the question surely arises, who's right and who's wrong? And who says? Paul distinguishes between two parties here in this whole passage. He's going to call one party the strong and one party the weak. 
And this is just Paul's way of saying those who are mature in their faith, the strong, and those who are immature in the faith. And listen, it's not to puff up the people who are strong. It's not saying they're better than the weak. It's saying they're further along. They've grown in the Lord. They've grown in their understanding of Scripture and the law. And they're just further along down the road. It's not to say that these are any lesser, to say that they're weaker. But they're younger in the faith. They have more to learn. And they're growing in the grace of God. Paul is also not talking about false teaching. He's not giving room for people who would practice what we call Judaizing, which is what he condemned in the book of Galatians. In other words, you have to be a Jew before you can become a Christian, and you have to be circumcised and embrace these laws in order to go to heaven. He's not dealing with that. He's not sanctioning any kind of Gnosticism, which the early church dealt with, which was this sort of superior knowledge through abstaining from foods or abstaining from this and claiming superiority over other Christians. It's not that at all. These are believers who have different opinions on lower level issues who are attending and worshiping in the same church. And the first principle is crystal clear there in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. To the one who is weak, to the one who is immature, coming from these different backgrounds, maybe they're coming from a Jewish background, and they know that they can eat what they want, and they know they can wear what they want, and they know the first day of the week is when Christians are worshiping, but there's still this tug in their heart when someone puts a piece of pork in front of them. Or maybe they're still having a, a trouble thinking about wearing a tunic made with two different types of material or practicing worship on a Sunday instead of on a Saturday. Maybe you have some former ascetics in the group who are having trouble that there aren't these regulated fasts and these commands to abstain from certain things and to deprive themselves of certain things. You throw in some Roman Christians and Greek Christians who maybe had come from a pagan background, and you're talking about food offered to idols in the temple that is now served, and they don't want to eat it because that was their former lifestyle. And so Paul's talking about these people with these different convictions, these different opinions, coming from where they were, not fully understanding their freedom in Christ, and he says those are weaker brothers. Martin Lloyd-Jones explained weaker brothers like this. He said the trouble with the weaker brother is that he is always the slave of the spirit of fear because he is not clear about things. I love how he ends this. He's not clear about things and wants to make sure he's right. You catch the end there? He's not clear about what he thinks or believes, but he knows he wants to be right. And so you put that in the context of these people with these different backgrounds, these different opinions, these different preferences. They're not clear on where they stand. This is where they came from. This is where they are. They want to be right. But who says what's right and who says what's wrong? So what do we do with them? Paul says, do we shun them? Do we mock them? Do we ridicule them? Do we remove them? No, he says, verse 1, we welcome them. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, remember outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Esteem others more important than yourselves. And this principle, Paul says now, is reciprocal. Between the weak and the strong, the strong should welcome the weak, understanding that there will be differences. Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. It's just an example okay, of many differences there could be. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. How can we put this into perspective, Paul asks. You have this person who says this, and this person who says this. This person says, I can eat anything I want to. This person says, I'm only going to eat this. He says to this one, welcome the weaker brother. And he says to the weaker brother with all the rules, don't pass judgment on the stronger brother. Instead, welcome him. Why? Verse 3, because God has welcomed him. And the question would be, he welcomed who, Paul? Are you talking about the weak? Or are you talking about the strong? And the answer is yes. Because the same grace that God has extended to the weaker brother, he has extended to the stronger brother. 
It's the same grace that God has extended to the Jews, struggling with Sabbaths and holy days and the clothing and the food. It's the same grace he has extended to the ascetics who are struggling with flu food and pleasure and any other sort of idea that they came with. It's the same grace he's extending to the Gentiles who are coming out of paganism and who knows what. It's the same grace he's extended to you for salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 4 He says, he is Lord, not you. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? He's not your servant. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And who is his master? For the Lord is able to make him stand. So whether you consider yourself a weaker Christian... I switched sides on me, didn't I? Whether you consider yourself a weaker Christian looking at the stronger Christian or the stronger Christian looking at the weaker Christian... The Bible says here that God has welcomed all of us through Jesus Christ. And he says here, do not then pass judgment on one another. This person is not your servant. He is Christ's servant. This person is not your servant. He is Christ's servant. Jesus is Lord of their convictions. Jesus is Lord of their conscience. Not you. So get out of it. That's what Paul says here. Now, it's not to say that these opinions and these things don't matter. They do matter. These are important conversations sometimes. And Paul says that in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul says, God has welcomed us all. Who are you to say to someone You don't belong here because of this opinion on this lesser issue. And then Paul puts it in perspective. Some will say this day really matters. Some say that day doesn't matter. Some will say I can eat what I want. Some will say no, you can't eat what you want. Some will say I can wear what I want. Some will say no, that you can't wear what you want. Some will say I can drink what I want. Some will say no, you can't drink what you want. Paul says here's the bottom line. If you're going to believe something and you're going to be convinced of it, that's the word, be persuaded of it. Don't just embrace a rule or don't just embrace a way of thinking, well, it's because the way I was raised. Or it's my culture. That's my background. That's what mom and daddy said. That's what me, mom, and papa said. That's who I, whatever I've received that from, Paul says that's not good enough. No, know what you believe, know why you believe it, and be able to defend it, he says. Be fully convinced or persuaded by what you believe. Have reasons, good reasons thought through reasons. Here's what's funny about this. I think Paul knows what he's doing. Sometimes when you have this rule or this thing or this custom or this preference or this opinion that you're just so totally convinced of, you don't really know why, but you just know that's what you think. And as you begin to think and research and study the Bible, church history, look at cultures around the world, maybe in trying to convince yourself of your stance, you become convinced that that stance isn't true. And so Paul says, at least know why you're saying what you're saying, and maybe you'll change your mind. But if not, at least you're persuaded and you're convinced. We'll talk about why that's so important in a little while. Verse 6, Paul goes on. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You know what Paul says? You want to observe a certain day? Have at it. You want to eat a certain food or abstain from a certain food? Have at it. But what is the principle behind all of it here? You see that repeated phrase? In honor of the Lord. In honor of the Lord of the Lord. You see the primary principle there? Those three times he says, whatever you do, do it in honor of the Lord, giving thanks. Be convinced of what you're saying. Be convinced of what you're practicing. Make sure you're doing it to honor the Lord and give thanks as you observe or as you abstain, as you eat or as you don't. When it comes to these matters of dispute, these matters of debate, Everyone should be in this, no matter what the view is, trying in that motive to honor God. And we should see one another in light of that motive. 
understanding that where you're different from me on this issue, you know why you believe that. You know why you're convinced of that. And I'm going to trust that you're trying to honor the Lord in your conviction. In the same way, you need to understand that where I'm different from you, I'm trying to honor the Lord in my conviction. Everyone honoring God. Everyone giving thanks. Not mocking. Not ridiculing. Not judging. Not condemning. But bearing with one another. This is familiar, isn't it? With love and humility. Paul says, beginning in verse 7, this is not about any one of us. Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul says this isn't about us anyway. This is about Jesus. And if we live, let's live to the Lord. If we die, let's die to the Lord, for we belong to him. Verse 9. For to this end, for this purpose, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus is the one who died and rose again. Jesus is the one who saves sinners. Jesus is the one who redeems you. And Jesus alone is Lord of your conscience, not any one of us. That's why he did it, so that he might be Lord. If you're reading these passages in the original language, I know you are sitting there doing that right now. Um, In verse 6, it's interesting to note that in our English Bibles, we, we sort of add in some words, and I know, gasp, but we, we add in the words to, to make clear what, what the author's saying. And in the original language, though, we don't have that um, honor word. It's just that same pattern. If you eat, eat to the Lord. If you abstain, abstain to the Lord. Whatever you do, do it to the Lord. And if you come down in verse 8, you see Paul sort of repeat that pattern. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. And whatever we do, living or dying, we are the Lord's. You see the pattern again. To the Lord, 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 to the Lord. Not to ourselves. We don't live to ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. We die and we live in him and through him and to him. We've already been there in Romans chapter 11, haven't we? And if he, Jesus, is Lord, not you and not me, and if he's the one who died and rose again, not you and not me, and if he's the goal of your living and your dying, and he's the goal of my living and my dying, not you and not me, maybe that changes the way we hold our opinions, our preferences, and our convictions as we ask ourselves, not primarily, does this please you? Or does this please me? But we ask ourselves first and foremost, does this please God? And then we trust that others in the church, even with different opinions, are asking themselves the same question. Now again, what we're not talking about are clear areas of sin and wickedness. Where the Bible is clear, we're not talking about compromising biblical morality As we confess this morning in our statement of faith, this is what the Bible teaches about marriage, about gender, about sexuality. We're not talking about compromising on those issues. We're talking about areas of dispute and disagreement, maybe where Scripture isn't as clear as we would like it to be to be able to support our opinions. And if you're paying attention, even then you'll notice that there will be disputes about what is disputed. Because you might say that is absolutely clear, and someone else might say that is absolutely not clear. But the bottom line, as we have seen, is Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus the Lord has welcomed the weak, and if you think the weak are those who do such and such, maybe, maybe today everyone, I think probably everyone sitting here thinking, you're certainly not the weak one. So let's say, they think, if you think the weak are, are someone else that do such and such, Or maybe you think the weak are the ones who abstain from such and such. You fill in the blank. Here's the good news for you today. You're both right. 
You're both right in one sense. We're all the weak ones here. Because as much as we could talk about spiritual maturity and sanctification and growth in holiness and growth in grace, and if we all had little meters above our heads that showed where we are in that growth, no matter who considered themselves strong and who considered themselves weaker, the real strong one here clearly is Jesus. And if he has welcomed you who think you're strong, and if he has welcomed you who might might be in the weaker category... Who are any of us to go and cast anyone out? And you might think these debates that we're talking about in Rome are, are foreign to us. But they're not. Because we still disagree about dress. We still disagree about drink. We still disagree about food. About smoking, about movies, about TV, about music, about language, about exercise, about yoga, about holidays. I mean, I could go on and on about things that Christians, trying to honor the Lord, disagree on. And the question for you this morning is, do you quickly dismiss someone who holds a different view on these lesser issues? Are you quick to judge as weak? Are you quick to judge as sinner? Have you considered, listen, that you might be the weak one in that equation. Paul presents the weak ones here as the ones that have all the rules, that have it all figured out. Paul says that's actually the weaker one. Do you quickly judge or belittle others with different convictions? Maybe you think you're the strong one. I'm the mature one. I have my liberty and my freedom in Christ. And these people, well, they're just stupid. Is that the way you view the situation. Perhaps you could stop for a minute and think about yourself, the sinful wreck that you were, and yet this one Jesus died and rose for you and welcomed you into his family. And maybe rejoice in that he welcomed you, he is also welcoming them. And maybe rejoice and learn from them. Both seeking to honor the Lord. Both seeking to do what is pleasing to the Lord. And maybe, just maybe as we grow together in the Lord, we will grow together in the Lord. As we grow in our sanctification and our holiness and experience true liberty in Christ. Let's go to the next section now, verses 10 through 23. Do not judge Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Quoting from Isaiah 45. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean if anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul begins this section asking the question, why do you consider yourself to be the judge? He says clearly there in verses 10 through 12, there is one judgment and there is one judge. We will all stand, verse 10, Before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, and each one of us 
will give an account of himself to God. Who will you give an account for? Yourself. Will you give an account for anyone else? No, they will give an account for themselves. And again, remember, I have to keep saying this because this is such a touchy thing. We're not talking about watering down anything. We're not talking about compromising biblical, clear biblical morality. We are to call out sin, but we're to do it biblically. We're to preach the judgment of God, but to do it biblically. We're to preach the doctrine of hell and to warn people, but to do so biblically. All the while remembering the motive. Back in chapter 12, verse 10, esteeming one another. Back in chapter 12, verse 14, blessing those who persecute you and not cursing them. Back in chapter 12, verse 17, repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is good in the sight of all people. Chapter 13, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So keeping that concept in mind, love for the body of Christ, love for my enemy, love for all people, preach the truth. Call out sin, preach the judgment, preach hell, preach the wrath of God, call people to repent in love. Remember the motive. You go on Google and try to search this quote, you won't find who said it. There's 15 people it's attributed to. Mostly goes back to Luther on his deathbed. But it's wonderful to quote even the same. We are nothing but beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And if we will keep that motive in mind as we preach the truth, as we're clear about biblical principles, we'll keep that motive in mind that Paul wants us to keep in mind. Sometimes we think about the judgment of God as if we're going to be held up against them. So you see that worst thing on TV, that worst thing on social media, and you pat yourself on the back and you say, well, I want to do pretty good on the day of judgment because at least I'm not like that. Might do you well to remember Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple, right? It was the Pharisee who said, thank God I'm not like him. Well, it was the one who beat on his chest and begged for mercy. Jesus said he's the one who's justified, not the Pharisee. But sometimes that's how we think about the judgment of God. That on that day, uh, compared to everything else out there in the world, we're going to look pretty good. Problem is, God is not going to be comparing you to everything else in the world. God is going to be holding you up to his standard. And what is his standard? Absolute perfection. How well do you do in light of that? Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the message since then has been great. Yes, we're guilty. Yes, we're condemned in our sin. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we can be justified. We can be set free. We can be liberated. So the question is, for those of you who are free in Christ, for those of you who have liberty in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, how can you then turn and try to impose the law on someone else? Why don't we point them to the same grace that saved us? Why don't we point them to the same Jesus that saved us, the same mercy, and invite them to the same faith alone that saves us? After all, On that day of judgment, how are you going to survive except by faith? The one who by faith is righteous, Romans 1.17, shall live. And in light of all that, it should govern how we use our Christian liberty. Verse 13, instead of judging, and again, in the original language, there's a little play on words here. Therefore, let us not pass judgment, but then uh, you see, but rather decide. It's actually the same word, that word krino, which means I decide or I judge. And so Paul's kind of playing on words here. He says, instead of passing judgment on other people, maybe judge for yourself never to put a stumbling block in front of anyone. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, listen, and this is candid Paul here, I know I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Talking about food. 
But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Don't let your liberty and your freedom become a snare and a stumbling block for someone else. And in other words, in light of that judgment that's coming, stop and maybe judge yourself for a moment. Paul says, listen, I know what's clean. I know what's unclean. I know in Christ all has been made clean. Paul says, though, maybe to you, those coming from a strict Jewish background in his day, maybe there's still that twinge that something's wrong with this plate of bacon. I don't know if they had bacon in the first century, but if they knew Jesus, they did. And so they're there having this disagreement, having these disputes, and Paul says, I know the truth, but maybe you don't yet know the truth. And he says, more important than my personal liberty and my personal freedom. And more important than your liberty and your freedom, Paul says more important than that is your love for a brother or sister in Christ, even if they might be considered weaker. Why? Paul says, and I know this is going to, because it's still sin to them. Now you're thinking, man, that's confusing. <laughs> so, so sin is different from one person to another? And, and what makes it a sin is whether I consider it a sin or not? Well, that's an easy solution. Nothing is sin to me. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Now, that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying in their minds, as immature and weak in Christ as they are, their convictions are different. And Paul says to cause them to violate those convictions or to violate their consciences, listen, even if they're mistaken, can still be sinful because this is to cause them to act. He says this later in verse 23. It's to cause them to act apart from faith. So if you are strong and you cause someone who is weak in the faith to violate their conscience, even if it's mistaken, even if they haven't grown to the level you are yet, because, verse 5, they're not convinced of what they're doing. They're just trying to please you. You see the difference? They're not convinced that this is right. They're not convinced that this is okay. But to please you, to fit in, whatever the motives are, it's not to please God. It's not coming from faith. It's not to honor the Lord. It's to please you or to do whatever. It is still then sin to them. So as confusing as this sounds, just bear with me for a moment. Something can be a sin subjectively to them, even if that thing is not a sin objectively in light of the truth of God's word. Because if they are violating conscience or violating that sense of pleasing God, even if they're mistaken, because they're not convinced, verse 5, because they're not acting from faith, verse 23, they're trying to please you. They're trying to please their flesh. Whatever it is, that's an evil motive. And so even though the act itself might not be sinful, the motive then becomes sinful. Does that make sense? The motive and the spirit and the heart is what is sinful in that situation. And so Paul says, give each other room. Verse 15 if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, look at, the, look at the consequences. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't let what you consider good, verse 16, be spoken of as evil. Don't use your Christian liberty and your Christian freedom, yes, to, to do as you please and to eat what you want, to drink what you want, to wear what you want. Don't let that be a stumbling block to someone else. For whom Christ died. Give thought to the conscience of another person. Paul says in verse 17. At the end of it all the whole thing is not about eating or drinking anyway. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. But of righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. And one side says yeah. 
It's not about eating or drinking, you weak-minded people. But I think this goes both ways. I think they might also say, yeah, to the strong person, it's not about eating and drinking. If your freedom hurts another person or causes them to stumble, or if your convictions stir up self-righteousness and judgment in, in you, you're doing it wrong. And the goal of verse 17, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, you're not following that. So the strong person might say, 1 Corinthians 6:12, all things are lawful for me. And the weak person might say, no, following Christ means this eating or drinking or not this eating or drinking. And you just throw whatever disputed matter you want to into the mix and, and turn on the randomizer and see what comes out. Paul says to the strong, listen, the kingdom of God is not about your freedoms. But he says to the weak, the kingdom of God is not about your rules. You want to shorten this? Yeah, you say, everybody wants to shorten The kingdom of God is not about you. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking or this preference or this opinion or this debate, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says maybe we need to rearrange our thinking. Maybe to the strong, he says, verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Maybe to the weak, he says, verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. That person you consider weak in the faith because they do the things you don't do. They don't follow your rules. They have been accepted by God. So to the strong, Paul says, don't pursue license as freedom to sin. He says to the weak, do not pursue self-righteousness through legalism. Instead, verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Prioritize peace. Prioritize love, harmony, humility, not my way. Verse 20 makes it even clearer. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Now, I'm going to alleviate you just for a second in that verses 20 through 23 are really just a repetition of what we already saw in verses 13 through 16. Especially verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. And so Paul's really just restating the same argument. You think this is okay? That's fine. Don't cause your brother to stumble. Your opinions, your preferences are not worth hurting the church. Your opinions and your preferences are not worth hurting your brother and sister in Christ. I think it's interesting, once we come to the end of this chapter, the instruction is given mainly to those who consider themselves stronger, which might have been everybody, and it might be everybody today. Well, I'm, I'm the strong one in this city. And Paul says, okay, you're the strong one, you bear the burden in this. To welcome the weak, to cater to their convictions, to sacrifice for their opinions. And to lay your preferences down for them. Yes, stronger Christians care for weaker Christians, even if it costs you your supposed freedom. And this isn't as easy as we'd like to make it, is it? One group says alcohol, sinful. Sinful to anyone who drinks it, sinful to anyone who smells it, sinful to anyone who touches it. I mean, we would just have to reckon. With about 1,800 years of church history, and um, Martin Luther, who said two best things in life are a good ale and a good woman, right? Or Spurgeon, who smoked a cigar most every night of his life, quote, to the glory of God. And so you could say that, 
But then the other side could say, yeah, drinking is the best thing ever, and everybody should do it. And then you would have to reckon with those who battled alcoholism in their family or liver disease in their family. And we could go example after example after example. And as much as you want to plant your flag and stand there and say, this is the greatest thing ever, there's another side. And as much as you want to stand there and say, that's the worst thing ever, (laughs) there's another side. So it's not as easy as we'd like to make it. Examples could go on and on. And we're, and we're really good at that, aren't we? Reducing everything to what I think and what I like. Whether it's abusing freedoms to abuse others in the church or, or riding our little hobby horses into town and preaching judgment against everybody who doesn't agree with us. What is the goal for Paul? What is the goal for Jesus in verse 19? Mutual upbuilding. It's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. The whole body joined and knitted together in Christ, building itself up into him in love. And if we're not going to be able to do that because of ridiculing on one side or judging on the other, then we're not doing what God has called us to do. But if we will put first love, harmony, peace, joy sacrifice that's what Paul is calling us to here. that's what the Lord is calling us to here lastly and quickly I promise chapter 15 this closing benediction for this section we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and do not please ourselves let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up there's that edification again building up For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In verses 1 through 2, we see another repetition of that burden on the stronger. Not using your freedoms to push people away from God, but verse 2, building people up. And then Paul says, can you think of another time when someone who was stronger came to serve those who were weaker? Because of course you can think of such a time. Romans chapter 5 verse 6, while we were still weak. Christ died for the ungodly. Furthermore, verse 8 of Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the takeaway for Paul is plain and simple as it is for us. This is your pattern. Jesus did not reproach for reproach. Jesus did not revile us for reviling him. Instead, verse 3, he took that reproach on himself. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sakes he became sin who knew no sin so that in him, so that for this purpose, we might become the righteousness of God. So if you're sitting here today and you would say, well, I'm not giving up my freedom. Or maybe on the other side you say, I'm not doing that. I'm not serving those people. The question is, can you put those words into the mouth of Jesus? And you can't. Philippians 2 verse 6, though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by becoming obedient. Obedient, verse 8, to the point of death, even death on the cross. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve. Luke 22, 42, Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but what you will. This is our Lord. This is our pattern. The one who left glory to serve us to the point of death. The one who stooped down to wash sinners' feet. 
Here is your template. Here is your example. Verse 4, Paul says, this is what's been revealed to us in the scriptures. This is what came to us. The instruction that we've received points us to Christ. And that's why he goes to this benediction in verse 5, to Christ. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Serve one another as Jesus did. Love one another as Jesus did. Lay down your preferences for one another as Jesus did. Why? So that we might be one in him. So that we might with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. So that in all of our disputes, all of our debates over this issue or that issue, matters of opinion, matters of preference, verse 7 would be the end of the discussion. That we would welcome them just as we have been welcomed in Christ Jesus. You see that tidy little bookend? What do we start with? Welcome them just as God welcomed you. What do we end with? Welcome them just as God has welcomed you. Here's news for you this morning, Christians. Maybe not news for you who have been in church a long time. We're not going to agree on everything. Amen? We can agree that we're not going to agree. Amen? Let's do the triage, though. Let's put it up against the the graph and see, is this primary, is this secondary, is this tertiary, is this lower? And in those disagreements, look for opportunities to show Christ. Opportunities to show love. Opportunities to grow together, to be built up into Christ. Opportunities to glorify God and to proclaim Jesus. Listen, if you're here today and you think, I'm a strong Christian, welcome the weak. If you're here today and you think it's your preferences that rule, do not judge. If you think your liberty and your freedom is the goal, do not cause your brother to stumble. And if you're here today, no matter which side, and you think you're better than anyone else, welcome one another. You're not the goal here. Jesus is the goal. The gospel is the goal. And so whether you consider yourself weak or strong, the reality is we're all weak, saved by a strong Jesus. Let us make him our goal, and in that we will find true Christian liberty. Thank you, our God and Father, for your word. Help us to understand. Help us to obey. God, these are difficult concepts for us. We want clear answers. We want rules. We want checklists. We want do's and don'ts. And so, God, help us by your Holy Spirit to know how to obey you. No matter what our preferences or our opinions or our disputes or our debates, help us to bear with one another in love and humility. And help us, all of us, to have one motive, to do what honors the Lord to point people to Jesus, to point people to the gospel. Give us wisdom in this, God. Thank you for our freedom. Help us not to abuse it. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Help us to listen. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. FBCDUMAS at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935 5604. We'll see you next time.